But uh, we're going to take the summer off. We're putting Romans on the shelf. We're getting back to that. But this summer, we are looking at Revelation chapters 1 through 3, the very last book of the Bible. So I invite you to open your Bibles to uh, the book of Revelation. Uh, the very last book of the Bible, if you've got one in the pew, just, just right there. Um, and um, we're going to work through the first three chapters of Revelation this summer. And uh, what makes this summer series unique is that I'm not going to be preaching um, the next seven weeks. Um, capable men, seven of them in the congregation, are going to be preaching different passages of Scripture. You know, Rock Valley Bible Church, we just want to raise up godly men and women to, in all aspects of the ministry, right, to, to be able to do things. We, of anything I want in my ministry is to empower you to serve others, to help others in whatever way God puts it on your heart to, to serve. John Underhill and going into the... Um, Going to the jail is a perfect example of that. He's got a heart for this. He's going to that. I just want to get behind him and, and fan the flame of that. Uh, there are other things that uh, perhaps are on your heart. And I just encourage you just to do that, just to, to go forth. And one of the ways to basically demonstrate that is by distributing the preaching load. It's just an expression as we in the body are not dependent upon one person. It's not me preaching that is uh, Foundation of Rock Valley Bible Church. It's all of us. We need to learn to care for one another, serve one another, uh, minister to one another, and really be about a body. And this is just one way that we can do that and, and model that. And uh, just seven men preaching is a good way to, to do that. And so this morning what I want to do is set the stage in Revelation chapter 1. <coughs> and then over the next sun, seven Sundays or, or so, there's going to be a, a few little breaks there. We're going to go over the, the different churches there in, in Revelation. Um, each of these seven churches have a different message that go to them, and each of these men have a different message that they will, will preach to these churches. We're simply calling our, our series, The Church of Revelation, Listen to Jesus. And I trust you'll see why that subtitle there is, uh, um, is important and relevant. It is the title of my message this morning is Listen to Jesus. Let's read Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things which must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos 
On account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, And those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so begins the book of Revelation. As you can see in verse 1, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, it is the book that reveals Jesus it is, it is the book that, that opens him up so you can see Jesus for who he is. Now, of any book in the Bible, none is more controversial than the book of Revelation. There's controversy about when it was written. Was it written before the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 or was it written after the fall of Jerusalem, after AD 70? There, there's some on both sides. I, I think after is better. <coughs> there's controversy about how it was written. Like, why did John write these things so mysteriously, as we read there, verses 12 and following, about swords coming out of mouths and and eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze? Why, Why would he write like that? Why did he use these images? Was it some secret code to get past the scrutiny of the, the Romans? Or, or, or how literal are we to take this apocalyptic imagery? Because it is apocalyptic. It is, it is meant to, to say things in a, a strange and a bizarre way. Not that that's reality, but that's taken to be celestial and different and somehow different than what we can even see and grasp in a, a literal way. But it's difficult how it's written. The apocalyptic uh, literature is challenging. There's controversy about what it means. What does the symbol mean? What are the seven seals of chapter 6? Who are the 144,000 of chapter 7? What about the trumpets? What really do they represent chapters 8 and 9? What about these two witnesses of chapter 11? Who are they? And who's the beast of chapter 13? And what in the world does 666 mean? And what are the bulls of Revelation 16? And and who is Babylon? There's controversy of how it will be fulfilled. Is it all future? Or or is some of it future? Or is some of it past? it had been fulfilled in stages of history, or will it, will it all be fulfilled in a short period of time, or will it be a, a long time? What about the thousand years in Revelation 20? How, how, how is that all going to be fulfilled? <laughs> and there's lots of questions, but I, I believe in many ways, if you embrace the first verse of Revelation, it will clear up much of the controversy, or, or much of the controversy and the difficulty will be put in perspective. 
Indeed, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It shows Jesus for who he is. When Jesus came to earth, he, he walked it as a sacrificial lamb. But when Jesus comes back, he's going to come back as the Lion of Judah. He's going to come back to claim his kingdom. And that's what the book of Revelation is about. It's about Jesus claiming his kingdom as a lion. And in the end, Jesus wins. His people are in a city. God is dwelling with them. All his enemies are defeated and his friends are brought near. That's the message of the book that is clear. But what's interesting, in all the quabbles and quibbles about interpretation, about how this takes place or when it takes place, the sad reality is that the book of Revelation, it's all these debatable sort of things that become front and center, missing the big purpose of Christ and his coming. And and, and furthermore, what's interesting is that I have... uh, I I found in my experience that those people who are most into prophecy and into revelation are are characterized by a couple things. First of all, they're characterized by a love for current events. They love CNN. They love Fox News. They love BBC. They want to figure out what's going on so that they can take it and match it up here. And I would say oftentimes to consume with those things rather than the things of revelation. Also, I have found that those who are consumed with prophecy and and revelation worry a lot. Because they worry, oh, is this going to be it? Or is this this going to be the end? Am I I going to go through these terrible events? Or what's going to happen? But what is revelation about? Revelation is about people who are in a difficult, persecuted time, and John is writing comfort to them. Listen, Jesus is going to win, and it's going to be okay. All these things are going to going to work themselves out. I'm telling you how they're going to work themselves out. Not that we understand it, but... And Christ is going to be on the throne. That should be a comforting message. But I have found people deep into Revelation and prophecy are, are always talking about current events and are always worried and are always anxious and are often wrong. I can't tell you how many times those who've been most involved and engaged have picked up, oh, this is going to happen, and it doesn't happen. Oh, this is going to happen. Oh, time is near. Time is near. Here it comes, and it, it doesn't come. And oftentimes they're deluded because they're just flat out wrong. Okay, so I'm not, I'm not at all denying the importance of seeking to understand these words. I'm not denying the, the importance to, to seek and inquire about the time of his return. It's, it's important to study and pray over Revelation and all that it means. But I'm just waving the banner today that says don't miss the blessing of Revelation, which many people miss. You say, what blessing am I talking about? I'm talking about verse 3. Look, look at verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. <laughs> I'm the one that just read that aloud, so the blessing has come on me. All right, so sorry, okay. Ble- and blessed are those who hear. That's all of you. But here's where the real blessing comes. And blessed <coughs> are those who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And I trust you see where the blessing comes. The blessing comes in obedience. Hearing, listening, and heeding, obeying the words. That's why my message this morning is entitled, Listen to Jesus. Because listening to Jesus is the path to blessing in your life. Not only in verse verse 3, but also the messages of chapters 2 and 3 are all about listening to Jesus. And when you get caught up in all the timings of everything and revelation, how it's fulfilled in the future, you can miss the purpose to obey Jesus, submit to him, 
Too many times, though, people are all figured out, trying to figure out the puzzle and not thinking about obeying him. And I just hope over these next seven weeks after this, this is eight weeks, that, that we would not be so interested in all those sort of things at Rock Valley Bible Church, but we would be interested in loving Christ and obeying him and following him. Because that's what Revelation is about. Jesus coming to rule and reign, submit to him, and all will be well. Now the good news is this, is that our series in Revelation this summer is that we're not going to really face those eschatological difficulties and, and uh, things because uh, much of that starts after chapter 3. There's a question, right? Is chapter 3 verse 4 is 4 in the future or is that present reality now? What about chapter 6? Is that in the future? And all those questions, we're not getting that far in this series this summer. Um, but we're just going to deal with uh, chapters 2 and 3, which deal with regular church life. Um, and in fact, there are seven different messages. That's why I figured seven men could preach these messages. It'd be really good. So this morning, as we look at uh, Revelation chapter 1, I have uh, just two simple points. We're going to look at John, and then we're going to look at Jesus. That's all my, my outline is this morning. John is the writer of the book. Jesus is the subject of the of the book. You can look and see John right there in, in verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Here we see John identified by name. John is the same John who wrote the Gospel of John. John is the same John who wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. John is one of the 12 disciples. He, he had a, a special place in the heart of Jesus. Um, in the Gospel of John, several times he identifies himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. There was something about John that Jesus loved. In fact, even while on the cross, the disciple whom Jesus loved said, Mary, behold your son, behold your mother. And just kind of giving his mother to John and trusting her with him. In verse 4, now we see the author, but we see the recipients of the book. The seven churches are in Asia. We're going to get to that. We're going to skip that right now. But we see John's circumstances in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. When John wrote these things, he was on an island. Island of, of Patmos, it's, uh, located about 40 miles, kind of gives you a little dimension there. Asia Minor is uh, modern day Turkey, but they called it Asia Minor, like Asia's way off there, but it's Asia Minor is what that is. There's Greece and Patmos is an, an island right there, it's about uh, 10 miles long, 6 miles wide, but it's not like, don't picture it like a box, it's more kind of uh, <coughs> in and out, it's because it's a, a volcanic hills and rocky ground, it's not a a real pleasant place to live. So when you think about island, don't think about tropics. John wasn't there just sipping his lemonade, right, and, and enjoying the cool breeze in his bungalow. No, think more this. This is what? Alcatraz. It was a prison. Now, of course, he didn't have all those buildings and everything like that. Uh, uh, the island of Patmos didn't, but, but it was a prison. It was an island prison. It was a, a place for political prisoners to, to go into exile. And John was a, a political prisoner there. In fact, you can even see that chapter 1, verse 9. I was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, he wasn't there to preach. He was there because he was preaching. And because there was opposition to the gospel... The Roman 
country, whatever, citizens, officials, emperors, right, put him on Patmos because that's where such a political criminal ought to be. So I'm just thinking about, okay, so, so what had to happen for John to be exiled to Alcatraz? He had to be pretty bold, right? The message had to be coming from his mouth. He was probably told to stop. He was probably warned, like Peter and John were in uh, Acts chapter 4. But what did they say? We must obey God rather than men and kept right on speaking and preaching Jesus as the Christ so much so that the Roman government said enough with this man and exiled him in punishment. Now, if you do your math correctly, he's somewhere in his 70s or 80s or 90s. So picture a 90-year-old man on Patmos. It's not comfortable there. The sun beats down. It's hot. He's probably in, in some sort of uh, shade there in, in Patmos, just trying to protect himself from the sun. It's not pleasant at all. We see a situation further identified in verse 9. It's a how hard it was. <coughs> I join your brother and partner in the tribulation and kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. John was the brother of those he's writing to. Not literal brother, but he's just saying, I have a kinship with you. I have a family relationship with you, believing people. I'm a partner with you in your suffering. So this, this gives you a little indication here about those to whom he's writing and what they were experiencing and they were suffering. And John says, I am right there in it as well. And we don't know what exactly his suffering was, but to be at some point exiled because you've been preaching for the gospel, there's some suffering that was certainly involved there. And when you place John in history, you can get a sense of, of what he felt. Eusebius, an early church father, said that John had been banished to the island in AD 95. And um, that would have been by the emperor Domitian, no friend of Christians. Listen to what Philip Schaff the historian said of the mission, he was a suspicious and blasphemous tyrant accustomed to call himself and to be called Lord and God. If we think our president is arrogant, Lord and God, it's way beyond. Sometimes Domitian would confiscate property of Christians. Sometimes he would exile them. As John was. And so John knew what it was to suffer, as did his readers, dealing with it. And by the way, dealing with it well. Look again at verse 9, how he's dealing with it. He said, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and kingdom and patient endurance that are in Jesus. He was patiently enduring the suffering that was in Jesus. Patient. Knowing that the suffering had come upon him. But God had brought it. So realizing that, that things have come, but that's where he is, he was content. And he was enduring them. He was walking through them. He wasn't looking for a way out. He was patiently enduring them and walking through them. And I just say, I don't know whatever you're suffering with today, but are you patiently enduring it? Understanding that suffering often comes from a sovereign God or comes from us enduring through that through obedience and facing the, the wrath of mankind. But God always has his ways about what he's doing. Through many tribulations, you must enter the, the kingdom of God. But not always bleak. 
Because John had sweet times as well. Verse 10 describes one of those times. I was, spirit on the, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day is probably a reference to Sunday, the day when early Christians gathered for worship to remember the day when Christ rose from the dead. And um, despite the suffering of the body, those who believe in Christ can be alive in the Spirit, can worship in the Spirit, can be in the Spirit. Yet John's experience here was probably a little bit more special than any of us have ever had of being in the Spirit because he received this revelation. He received this vision. That's what he's talking about in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. So he was in the Spirit getting this divine revelation, this inspiration that was supposed to be then placed in Scripture to show to his servants, right? That is these, these churches, these seven churches, the things that must soon take place. And he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. The idea here is, is this how the book of Revelation came to be? John didn't set out and said, I'm going to write some apocalyptic revelation today. I'm going to write some sci-fi. No. He was was in the spirit, worshiping the Lord. And, you know, much like Peter, when he was in, um, uh, on on the, uh, the housetop, and they got, became a trance, and God spoke with him. So likewise, right, he's, he's got this vision uh, that John had, was interrupted by this angel or by Jesus or this vision, whatever. And we see, I was spirit in the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, just loud blasting. It says, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And he's like, whoa. That would shock you. It would shock me. And these seven churches here are the exact churches represented in chapters 2 and 3. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, right. Look at chapter 2, verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, right. Verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, right. Verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, right. Chapter 3, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis, right. Verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right. Verse 14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, right? These seven churches uh, are, are right there along a, a travel route. There's Patmos, 40 miles out. Ephesus was right there, just uh, on the shore a- across the way. I don't think he could see 40 miles across the shore. <coughs> but it was right there on the, on the shore, on the, the western edge of uh, Asia Minor. And then Smyrna was about 40 miles to the north. And then you go a ways north, 65 miles inland to the north, and you get Pergamum. And then you come in predominantly east, some four or five miles, to Thyatira, and then to Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. So you continue on in a southeasterly direction. And these seven churches all received a message. They received a message. And over the next seven weeks, we're going to have seven messengers from our congregation is going to preach through these messages. So like for instance, Phil Gosky is going to preach all the message to Ephesians, to Ephesus. And, and Phil, what, what's the message to Ephesus?
And then he wrote to the church in Smyrna. And Will Weber is going to um, preach that message. Will? There you are. What, what, what's the message of Smyrna? And then he was told to write to Pergamum. And uh, Gary Lumberg is going to preach on, on Pergamum. What's the message of Pergamum? The message of Pergamum is that uh, this great city is a great Roman government city with big temples, lots of paganism. And Jesus was very kind and said, you are doing a good job of standing for righteousness, even the point of martyrdom. But there are some in the group, not the majority, but there are some in the group who are influencing you to... Great. Next is Thyatira in Dallas. It's going to preach on Thyatira. What's the message of Thyatira? I know your works, your love, and faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your life and works exceed the first. Jesus telling them he knows the things that they have done, that they are good. But then he tells, he tells them what he has against them. And then at the end he tells them even more um, what, it, what it is that they should be doing. And then you come to Sardis, and that's Brian Mulder. What's, what's the message to Sardis? And then Philadelphia is coming next, and that's Ryan Brown. What's the message to Philadelphia, Ryan? Uh, Philadelphia is a small church that lacks power by any earthly standard, but um, they have held fast to, to the, the word of God, to the doctrine, the word of Christ. And so um, the word that Jesus has for them is to hold, keep holding fast, and they will be rewarded in Jerusalem. Great. Mm. Right, and then next is Laodicea, and that's Darren Weeby. What's, what's the message to Laodicea, Darren? Are you excited? I know, I'm excited. We've had a couple Saturday mornings together kind of talking about these things. It's been very encouraging. So we've kind of gone over it, and they've kind of begun working on their text. Pray for these men, and uh, pray for these messengers, is what I'm calling them. In fact, look, look, at, look at, did you notice how it's to the angel of the church in Ephesus? It's to the angel of the church in Smyrna, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, to the angel of the church in Thyatira, to the angel of the church in Sardis, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, to the angel of the church in Laodicea. Um, when we think of angels, we think of spiritual, like, heavenly beings. Um, but, but I don't think that this was written to some sort of guardian angel to these churches because I don't think that they had some sort of supernatural appearance. This angel came and spoke to all these churches. I, I think that better way to understand this is simply translate angel. Angel is a transliteration like baptism, baptizo, angel, angelos. The best, an angelos is a messenger. 
the best way to translate this is to the messenger of the church at Ephesus, to the messenger of the church at Sardis, to the messenger at the church of Smyrna and Thyatira. It's, it's, it's the messenger. And so these are messengers who are going to deliver a message over the next seven weeks. And really, there's one question over those seven weeks that we're going to ask. When, when Phil preaches, we're going to ask, are we Ephesus? Because this is what God spoke to Ephesus. In what ways are we like that? What applies to us? How can we respond? Or, or Smyrna, are we like Smyrna? In what ways are we like Smyrna? How can that message apply to us? Are we like Pergamum or Thyatira? Are we like Sardis or Philadelphia or, or Laodicea? And because, interestingly, each of these messages will begin with a description of the church, both good and bad. Now, they're not always, if it's all good, it's all good. If it's all bad, it's, it's all bad. But there's, there's a description. We kind of see, okay, where are we at that church? And then, then uh, Jesus is going to tell them how to respond and, and what to do. And it's so applicable for us today. And, in fact, in each of these churches, good or bad, in light of their situation, there's a phrase that ends every single church. If you look at chapter 2, verse 7, here it is. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Chapter 2, verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Chapter 2, verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Chapter 2, verse 29. He who has an ear, if you catch it, you can, okay. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Help me now. Chapter 3, verse 6. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 3.13. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 3.22. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the idea. The church of Revelation, if you have an ear, okay? You guys have ears? Okay, do you have ears? You got two of them. Two of them, I see. Roger, you got some ears? Yeah, there you go. All right. If you have an ear, let you hear. Listen. And, and this doesn't mean, right, to, to put on your, your ear pods and listen to your MP3 player and say, okay, I'm just going to listen to Revelation. No, the idea of listening in Scripture is the idea of hearing and heeding and obeying. The churches of Revelation listen to Jesus. Now, I almost entitled, subtitled this, Church of Revelation, Listen to the Spirit, but that comes across just so weird for us, right? Listen to the Spirit. What does it say? Oh, I've got to close my eyes, right? I'm just going to listen, listen to the Spirit. But this is, this is no real, tangible, square things that Jesus is saying. And if you look carefully, this is Jesus' words. Look at verse 17 of chapter 1. <clears throat> when I saw him... I fell at his feet, though dead, but he laid his right hand on me and said, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one, and I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Now, who is it, I ask you, who died, who rose and he lives, and he's got the key of death and Hades, conquered death? Who is that? Jesus, all right? So this is the words of Jesus. Um, so... I thought just to remove ambiguity, listen to Jesus is, a, is good and, and helpful for us. And so the question is, are, are you going to listen to Jesus? I mean, there cannot be a more applicable messages for us, for any American church, for any worldwide church, a message to us. Because we're somewhere in there. I mean, these churches span the spectrum from persecuted to small to big to rich to cold, to false teaching, 
to unfaithful. I mean, all over the spectrum, that wherever we are, we can fit into some of them. And we probably have some characteristics of several of them. And I guess my message to you this morning is, are you going to listen? Are you listening to these seven men? I know I'm going to be here for, I think, four of the weeks. Maybe I think five of the weeks I'm going to be here. Looking forward to that. Just as we seek to, to raise up other people serving and ministering. Because if you do and obey, there brings a blessing. Verse 1, verse 3. Blessed is the one who keeps what is written. So let me just pray for us before we get on to our second point. Okay, let's pray. <coughs> God, I would pray right now for these men as they have weeks, in some cases, to think about, ponder, and prepare for their their text as they've already been preparing for several weeks. I encourage them to memorize it, think on it, meditate. And, and I know they have, in many ways, a, a bigger advantage than I do of just not week in, week out, but just one message that they can really chew on. And Lord, I would pray that each of them, God, would would make an impact in our hearts and our minds. Different voices, different personalities, different backgrounds, God, but the same word. And I pray, God, just selfishly, that we all as a church would love their preaching. They would see in many ways how many weeks of preparation can trump pastor preaches week in week out and come to enjoy this summer and father i would pray for us though that you would create in us a tender heart god that would cause cause us a a softness to repent where we need to repent where we need to turn where we need to confess our sins god there's nothing more that that we say we want than a biblical church that's following after you that's pursuing you and your ways according to your word and yet that costs some things god that costs our life, that costs our repentance, that must bring up confession of sin, turning away from false teaching and understanding a coldness of heart, enduring through hard times, trusting in you. And so, Lord, as the Spirit speaks these next several months, I pray that we would be open to heed and to, to hear the messages that come forth. Oh, God, I, I pray for the future of Rock Valley Bible Church that we would... Be those who would follow after your ways. Help us, oh God. Amen. All right, well, let's move on to my second point. We're talking about Jesus. We're talking about John. We're talking about Jesus. This, this, this point's going to be shorter, okay? Um, just time-wise, we're going to lead into the Lord's Supper. All right, so talking about Jesus, leading in the Lord's Supper is a, it's always a safe thing to do. It's what we're going to do. Let's pick it up. I want to, as we think about Jesus, in verse 12. Remember, this is John heard this loud voice. Write in a book what you see. Send it to these seven churches. And so loud, right? Whenever there's a, there's a clap, what do you do? I just, y'all like, what is that? Right? And he heard this loud voice, so he's spinning around to see. And he tells us what he sees. He sees. Now, again, this is apocalyptic literature. This, isn't, this is apocalyptic Jesus. So you need to, you need to understand that this is a, a, a representation of reality, but it's not quite fully there, but it is how we're, it's just difficult, okay? But it does communicate some things with the, the imagery. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. These seven golden lampstands, I, I trust that you saw on our, on our teaching outline, right? The, the seven different different churches, okay? That's what the lampstands are, explained in, in verse 20. But we have the seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands 
one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. And John's response was only natural. If you, if you would see that, you would hear that noise in the Spirit on the Lord's day. You turn around and that's what you see. You might very well, like John, fall at his feet like a dead man. But he laid his hand on me. Jesus did. And he said, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I die, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, and those things that are, and those things that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. That's a picture of the scene. There are these lampstands. Jesus is standing in the midst of these lampstands. He's got his long robe and a golden sash, symbolic of a priest, if you will. Just a, a pure man, maybe, maybe some imagery. And there's a lot of imagery you can pull here from the Old Testament. We're not going to get into all that. But enough so that you know that someone wearing a robe and a, a sash is like a, a priest. Which, by the way, is what Jesus is. He's the one who speaks to God on our behalf. He is a priest. His, his hair was, was white, like white wool, like snow, like just this, this maybe wisdom comes out of that. You just think about white, maybe purity is coming out of that, this white, wise old man. His eyes were like a, a flaming red fire that is just penetrating deep into us. And I'm sure John felt like, like x-ray vision into his soul as he saw these eyes. His feet were stable, like bronze, you know, just Steady, strong. This is not a weak Jesus. This is a strong and mighty and powerful Jesus. His, his voice was loud like the roar of, of many waters. So that means that Jesus was speaking at this moment. That not only was he turning, but he heard his voice that was just overwhelming. It wasn't this quiet thing. It was this, this chaos. When the waters roar, it's peaceful, but it's turbulent, but it's strong, and it's loud, and it's authoritative. He held the seven stars in his right hand. He's just in control. These seven stars, we're, we're going to find out, are the messengers. So he's got, he's got these messengers. He's just going to throw them out to the churches as the messages come. And he's got this sharp sword that comes out of his mouth. You know, and John maybe is whatever. I'm not sure if it came out like a tongue out or whether it whether it came. And I don't exactly know of how how that worked, but somehow this sword was coming out, some offensive, attacking sort of perspective, making war. And his face shone like the sun. I, I think in some regard, you think of the transfiguration when the the glory of Jesus began to shine through, and just it's probably speaking about his his glory somehow. He said, I'm the, the first and the last, tying himself in with the Lord God, verse 8. I'm the Alpha and the Omega who was, who is and who was and who is to come. So tying himself in to the Lord, and you see the Trinity coming about here, but he's just saying, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm the first, I'm the last, I'm everything in between, I'm the all-important one. And he said, I've got the keys of death and Hades, I've conquered death. You don't need to fear 
And I think that's just kind of an overview of this picture of Jesus. Now, what's interesting is here's many of these elements come up again in chapters 2 and 3. So, for instance, when he's standing in the midst of the lampstands, he writes to Ephesus, and it says that, chapter 2, verse 1, the words of him who holds the seven stars in our hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands. It's the words of Jesus drawing us back to this imagery of Jesus among these lampstands with these seven messengers in his hand. Or his eyes are like flaming red fire. That's the the picture of Pergamum there. Um, We're talking about uh, his feet are like bronze, steady, strong. And Dallas will explain everything, what that means to us. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, so Sardis, I'm the one who's got the seven stars in my right hand. And and Brian, you're all over that, what that means, right? And... um, the sword coming out of his mouth and Tyatira and Gary, you're going to help us with that. What, what that means, the sword coming out, making war. And then we have, um, on the first and the last, I think that's Smyrna, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, chapter 2, verse 8, the first and last is dead, come to life. And Will will open up that and explain to us. In Philadelphia, he has the keys of, of death and of Hades. He's conquered life. Now, the only one that's not coming right, right from here is Laodicea. But Laodicea brings us back to chapter 1. So if you look at Laodicea, chapter 3, uh, verse 14, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. That's exactly what another description of Jesus was back in chapter 1 and verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. And when you put all those together, what do you see of Jesus? You see this overarching picture of of authority and weight and sovereignty and power. And this is who Jesus is. He's just being set up as the lamb who's coming back to rule and to reign. It's really, in many ways, like like an, an overwhelming picture of Jesus. That's why John fell at his feet, so overwhelmed. And yet in the midst of this, a description we haven't seen of Jesus yet, comes the last half of verse 5. Let me just begin with verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from who? From him who is and who was and who is to come, from the seven spirits who are before his throne, whatever that is, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the rulers on the earth. And then here he is. He gives his doxology, his praise, to him who loved us and freed us from our sins by his blood. And that's the gospel right there is that God loves us and he frees us from our sins by his blood upon the cross. And it's interesting, what's the fruit of that? He makes us and he made us a kingdom. Priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So what's he doing? We're priests. We would be priests of God, all of us. Now, one of the doctrines of the New Testament, which is wonderful, is the priesthood of the believer. That, that is, the, that all of us, right, we're all in some regards priests. We all, it's not just a, a holy man that you, you have to go to, but no, all of us can go to God. And that's the whole spirit of this, having seven men preach, is that it's not just me. I'm not the priest you need to go to. There are others who are fully capable of taking God's word and opening it and being our messenger. That will help us. But I wanted to reflect here upon verse 5. Right here that uh, says, 
to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. You know, it was the love, that was the motivation that freed us from our sins. So the motivation that even drew him to the cross. We've been in Romans, Romans 5, 8, right? God demonstrates his love toward us. And then while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Here we see the same verse almost. To him who loves us and came and died for us because he freed us from our sins by his blood. So the sacrifice of Christ is the truth. The truth sets you free. There's a freedom that we have when we are, are free and forgiven and that's what we know in the gospel. And so even all this, this message about obeying, let, let it not come like law to you, but let it come like gospel grace to you that, that says Christ is the one who's loved us. He's freed us from our sins and where we have gone astray. Let us obey Christ and let us walk in his right way. Let's follow after him. So as we transition to the Lord's Supper, let's just think about that. Right, that that's what we do. The, the, the blood, the bread, and the cup is symbols and elements of his death upon the cross. His bread representing his body, the, the, the juice we drink representing his blood. And, and why do we do this? We do this because Jesus commanded us. We do this also because of a rem- way to remember Jesus. So remembering chapter 1, uh, verse 5 here, to him who freed us. Loved us and freed us from our sins. So let's bow our heads. We prepare to celebrate the, the Lord's Supper. Father, we've done this many times before. <coughs> I pray you'd keep us from ritual. God, but cause us, O oh, oh Lord, to, to really reflect upon our lives, whether we are in a believing state or not. Father, if we are those who, who love you, who know your love, who are seeking to walk in your ways, God, at this moment, even we remember you. As the scriptures speak about those who have ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Those who have ears are those who have ears that have been wide open. God, they've been open to hear the call and hear the summons of Jesus. So, Father, help us to examine ourselves, as 1 Corinthians 11 tells us to. God, help us not to eat the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, but... But, God, that we would confess our sins. And so even now, if there's sin to confess, confess that and just say, God, I'm like, I'm like one of these churches. Maybe I'm lukewarm. Maybe I need to change from that. Maybe, maybe I'm dead. I need to, need to be alive from that. And Jesus tells us right, to, to repent. Maybe I have lost my first love. I confess these things. So maybe I have been following after some false teaching or pursuing things that are, are not orthodox or denying the scripture in some way. Just confess those things. These, these are the things we'll look at over the next few weeks. Father, I thank you for Jesus. God, that to all who call upon him, God, he is there for forgiveness and grace. Father, we, we pray as we celebrate the supper here this morning, may we, we do so delighting to know we've been freed from our sins. God, what a, what a great thought that is. The, the sovereign Jesus has come to rescue us. God, be with us now as we celebrate the supper. In Christ's name, amen.